Welcome to The Data Economy, a podcast about leaders like you who use data to drive business growth and accelerate digital innovation. I'm your host, Michael Krigsman. In this podcast, technology leaders offer practical advice and a firsthand look into modern data strategies and their digital initiatives. You can watch all the episodes on redis.com slash the data economy. We're discussing real-time data with Eric Haller from Experian. Eric, how are you? It's great to see you again. Hey, same here. It's good to be back on your show. Eric, tell us about Experian and tell us about your role. Sure. Well, Experian is a global information services company. We do business in over 40 countries, have about 18,000 employees, and uh, are in a lot of different industries. But you might know us mostly by credit. And here in the United States, uh, we're one of the, we own one of the three major U.S. credit bureaus uh, that's consumer-facing. And uh, so most people know us by that. But we're in a lot of different markets. It can be auto, healthcare, uh, marketing, uh, across the board. My role is I, I'm a, a business leader. I'm executive vice president. That I manage our identity and fraud P&L globally, as well as R&D, which we call our data labs. And I manage data labs ar- around our globe. So obviously, real-time data is central to your business. Absolutely. In any of the enterprises, uh, we do a lot of work on behalf of our customers behind the scenes. We're having up to the minute, the freshest, most accurate information available uh, is critical to making the best decision at that time, particularly when it comes to credit risk or fraud. As the world goes into a digital environment, uh, that information and being able to collect, gather, analyze, and respond back uh, literally in milliseconds becomes a, a critical part of the process. So the real-time aspect is then absolutely crucial. Yeah. So, you know, you have to think about just data in, in general. And, and if you're, if you're a, we'll say a geek in the data world, you kind of segment out of the world, the world into things that you have time to think about and things where you've got to answer in the moment. And so um, in the world of answering in the moment, some of that information is captured, analyzed, collected, and teed up. It takes a lot of time to do that, so it's all teed up. So when you have to make a decision, it's ready and available right away. And a lot of our decisions, that's, that's a big part of it. But there are some decisions, like in the world of fraud and, and in the, uh, you're in an, a digital environment, where the actual data that's captured as a part of the transaction or a part of that process is absolutely critical in making the best decision of the time. So you're taking what's happening now in the moment and what you've known about in some kind of his, his, historical perspective and analyzing, scoring it, and making coming up with a decision. And that's, that's the nexus of what I call real time. Many decisions are made in the moment. It gets more challenging and more complicated and where we have to really exercise, I'll say, some uh, analytical and technical muscle to actually leverage information that's being captured as part of that process, where that's part of the the scoring mechanism or the machine learning process of arriving at the right the right decision. So, at a high level, then the real time aspect is vitally important for certain segments of your business. More importantly, for what your customers are doing. How much data are we talking about? What's the kind of scale that you operate at? 
Well, again, it, it's it's really different different types of ways of looking at the data. So in R and D, we're very comfortable leveraging you know large data sets, terabytes of data. I think collectively, our four labs are probably dealing with about an exabyte of data regularly across four labs. That's about a thousand petabytes. It's a so we're used to using like, but that's. That's typically when you're analyzing uh, a large corpus of information to try to extract out certain behaviors that you can leverage. Like, hey, this is a people group that we've never lent, uh, has never been lent to before in Africa. So how much information can we capture so we can extract a signal so we can understand how to lend to them? In that real-time environment that you were talking to, the payloads are, are smaller, but they're very, very concise. Like every data element is is important. So the amount of data is not a lot, even if it's a thousand uh, bytes of data, which doesn't sound like a lot. There's a lot of information there that you're going to have to try to make a decision on. The sheer magnitude of data in a real-time environment may, might not be as large as kind of the the breadth of information that's coming in. And I'll give you an example. So kind of as, as a consumer, you know, you're, you're buying your item on the internet, you know, you, you've gone through, you get into the shopping cart. And what you might not realize is there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes real-time. And, and that can be from, hey, we're looking at the device that you're using and there's information, the characteristics that are captured as just part of a, a one device communicating with another on the internet. And they're saying, have we ever seen this device before? Uh, there are uh, sensors on your device that measure, capture how fast you're doing something. Uh, if you're on your mobile device, how many pixels you might be firing up on your screen at any time. That information, believe it or not, actually is very insightful to know whether or not you're a real person or if you're a bot. You know, bots may send information without firing hardly any pixels at all off on your phone, maybe one one or two pixels that that, that it'll do as part of the, uh, the messages coming through. And we know that a finger touching a screen will fire off a minimum of like 110 pixels. So it's that kind of information that's captured. It's small bursts, but very meaningful. And I could I probably, I don't know if your eyes will glaze over, you'd find it fascinating about all the different aspects of data that we capture during that online process, just to validate that you're a real human being. Uh, hopefully that we've worked with you before, that our clients work with you before. And there's a certain comfort level to know that when you buy that item, you're not a fraudster, you're not a bot perpetrating fraud, that you're an actual consumer that wants the goods and services and, and it's going to be sent to your home. 99% of the time, everything is good. It's it's the 1% or less than 1% of the time when you're dealing with actual fraud. And that's where all that real-time information and validation and, and assessment becomes very critical. And how fast is all this taking place? Milliseconds, milliseconds, literally less than a blink of an eye. I think, uh, you know, some of our faster, faster uh, solutions will run at 40 milliseconds. I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm trying to recall my visa days. I used to be a payment payments guy. And I think uh, typically if you're in a retail environment, you, you need to, you need to run at about 200 milliseconds. So uh, is that about fifth, one fifth of a second? Uh, and we'll do one fifth of that. So uh, extremely fast. That's the environment that we're in. So let me get this straight. So you're gathering dozens, maybe hundreds of data points to first validate the authenticity, the identity of that transactor, that person to ensure that it's an authentic, legitimate transaction. And it's only at that point that you start 
analyze, collecting the real data relating to the transaction, processing that data, and then returning it back to the device. Yeah, the um, depending on the process that we're talking about, so since we just are camped right now on uh, doing things online, which is what most people do these days anyway, that transactional assessment happens multiple times during a session uh, of which you are not you are not even aware of until it comes time to actually hit a buy this item or whatever it is you're doing online. And this isn't just, you know, Experian does this kind of work, but there are a lot of folks in the industry that do this, including our clients, but you're going to be looked at or watched as you go through a website. It's very peculiar if somebody's on a website and they all of a sudden want to look at uh, source code. How is this website put together? I want to go flip over and see if I can get to the source code of that. That would be a red flag. Normal shoppers don't do that. I've never done that, for example. So, so it's not it's not a normal it's not a normal behavior. But how you traverse from the moment you land on a site to the end game of actually buying something may go back and forth between our client and us multiple times to assess. Then, when you get to the actual call, Peter, the final transaction, and you're providing some information, an account number, a name, an address you're going to ship an item to, whatever those things are, then it goes through a whole nother assessment. Are these credentials valid? Is this match with what we've seen before? You know, look, taking into consideration so many aspects, ultimately, believe it or not, as, as crazy as all these hoops and checks and validations and going against databases and running models and all this happening in milliseconds, as crazy as all that sounds, we don't want to stop something unless we're absolutely convinced there's a lot of risk in this. Most often, there isn't a lot of risk. Most often, the happy path is successful purchase. And that's what our clients care about too. They don't want to disrupt people's, uh, their customers' experience because of the risk unless the risk is high enough or certain enough that they want to take an action. So that all that behind the scenes, in theory, you could have an environment where, you know, your, your experience is choppy or, or you're asked a lot of questions along the way. And then that's no fun for anybody. Everybody likes the convenience of being online it would become less convenient to going into a store in some ways if, if you if you took that kind of approach. And that's not where the world's headed. The world wants to make it as easy as possible. So it's using all that information and validating that behind the scenes. And that that makes life a lot easier for all of us. On the other hand, if you get if you don't get it right, there's a very high cost to allowing a transaction through that should not have gone through because it is in fact fraudulent, masquerading as a legitimate transaction. That's why it's so important, you know, so our our clients, you know, we go through this ourselves, um, but our clients go through it with us, which is, you know, evaluating the efficacy of the approach itself and assessing, you know, like I always say, it's it's the data you don't see is what usually catches you. You know, if if you're going to get hit by fraud, it's because it's data that you're not analyzing, you're not seeing. And so, you know, the different approaches that are out in the market, we take a very, um, I'll say, broad, holistic approach where we're looking at as many data sets as possible. In fact, in our environment, we're building a, a platform right now that just does nothing but fueled with new data coming in. If it's been identified and can be captured and legally, we can pull it in. Obviously, there's legal hurdles and, you know, uh, we'll call it uh, 
regulatory aspects to this, but assuming we, that, that it's okay, we put it into a hub and we're constantly evaluating for new signals that might identify risk so that we can put that through to our clients and the solutions that we have in the market today. So you're right. If you get, if you get it wrong, you're going to take a financial hit. Uh, so the objective is is to stay as much on that edge of, as possible in terms of capturing the data and making sure you, you can see that fraud before you get hit. And again, this is real time. So it's happening faster than that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly right. It's uh, I've always had trouble getting my head around how fast this happens. You know, uh, when I was younger and I did my own coding you know, you'd get excited about processing a file faster. Like you'd put a file in and maybe one month it would take you, you know, all night to run. And then they upgraded your system and then it only took an hour. And so, you know, the idea of being able to understand the magnitude of what you're trying to do in, in a quick speed is easier, I think, than when you're confronted now where we're processing, you know, literally millions of transactions, you know, every day in, you know, millisecond time, time frame. It's just, Maybe because I'm in my 50s, it's it's just hard for me to to imagine it. I know we do it, and I see it, but it's uh, it's still yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I totally agree. It's just it's it is absolutely amazing. So not to get too geeky here, but the the technology, the database technologies, where does that come into play? Do you think about that, or is that just in the back end? Well, for sure. No, database technology has become a, a big part of things. You know, we were early adopters for Dupe, early adopters for Spark. We're, we're early adopters in, in uh, uh, a lot of, well, I'll say different database technologies to see how they play out. I think, you know, a few things like, uh, so we're talking about, we're talking about online and, fr- and, and, and fraud. And, you know, one of those things that, that's not really done real time, it's done in batch, but it's updated uh, on the, we'll call it on the margin real time, is an identity graph. So that is the aspect of uh, matching up all these different data elements that might describe, ascribe uh, our identity and trying to draw the probabilistic relationships between those. So, you know, we're all familiar with social security number, name, address, telephone number, birthday. Uh, that's what we're used to. In the online world, that would be augmented by maybe an email address, a mobile advertising ID, an IP address. A device ID, uh, and so all these pieces. Gosh, even now, now my uh, my dongle that's attached to my TV—that's a Roku dongle or Google Chrome dongle or Amazon—all these devices become a factor in our identity, our household identity, our individual identity. And so that is done in batch. And I bring that up because you bring up database technologies. Uh, a, a database technology like Neo4j, which you know may not necessarily. Uh, be on the, I'll say it on the, on the lips of everybody who's in, in tech, but in the ID graph world, that actually became a go-to database for us because of the, its ability to, to uh, calculate and draw those relationships. Uh, you know, it's a lot of work in what I would call high dimensional space where you're trying to draw relationships between data where there's no relationship that exists, but you're going through the machinations of developing relationships across your entire corpus of data. And that has to be reduced down to what we call uh, uh, low, low dimensionality or, or, or dense data where those relationships exist. Neo4j is very good at that. So I do think, you know, the world of database technology is definitely evolving. You know, even when I'm talking about reduction in, in dimensionality, yeah, I don't feel like I don't, hopefully I'm not getting too geeky here, but, but you know, that 
there are a lot of shortcuts that one does as a data scientist uh, to try to reduce down the amount of computational effort required, depending on how many relationships and how much data, and, and it's only getting bigger and bigger. I think database technologies will start picking up those tricks themselves, make life a bit easier for us. Uh, you know, it's, it's always typical that the innovation becomes, starts at like individuals and eventually works them way, their way into larger software platforms and computer chips. So that automation of some of that, I'll call it uh, human uh, ingenuity, uh, will, will happen. Profiles, individual profiles are getting far more complicated now than they, they ever were, were before. I think that's another uh, added perspective on database technology where that's going to evolve as well. I mean, I'm a, I'm a kid that grew up with pre-Oracle and DBase 4. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an old timer in the world has, it, it's constantly evolving and getting smarter. Um, we can talk a little bit about blockchain also, as well as the database technology, you know, that, that actually, I will say, even though I was a quick learner on blockchain, I'm a slow adopter and I have been, we're, we're playing in that space a little bit, but not aggressively. I do see some, I'll call it long-term potential value in blockchain and decentralized finance. The DeFi space is, is blowing up, but I'll, but I'll say it's like, really in my mind, it's a bit more abstract because when you're talking about decentralized, it's more about things like every business has a certain number of calculations that they do on data X, Y, or Z. And, and if you, you evaluate all businesses doing all their, their work, uh, how much overlap there actually is. And that's why I say it's a bit more abstract because as you start going to the blockchain world as, as, as those calculation, that calculation funnel might be able to actually be uh, made more efficient over time across a broad array, broad array of businesses, there's a financial value to that. There's also, a, you, could, you could argue there's a climate impact, a positive climate impact. There's a sustainability value there uh, in terms of, uh, 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 burning, burning up electricity and energy and, uh, and heating things up. So there is value there. I just think it's a bit more long-term and maybe a little, little more abstract than your immediate, you know, running an immediate PNL and seeing, seeing the value there. From a real-time data perspective, do you consider blockchain and decentralized finance to be real-time in the way that your transactional data is real-time? So, from what I'm exposed to, the answer is not really, but, but I do know that it's moving in that direction. So I, I, I won't say anything disparaging across the many, many businesses right now that are running, running at that. I do believe that when there's a lot of people focused on something and a lot of money put into something, there's a good chance that these hurdles like blockchain in real time is, and in and, and high volumes has always been kind of one of those hurdles you know, I could say right now, you know, decentralized finance is probably more along the lines of like a mortgage or, you know, something where there's, there are pieces and it's, and, and it is something that takes, takes a bit of time to work through, but I'm not going to say it's not going to get there someday. That would be, that, that would be my um, uh, moment where I say, you know, the, the mobile phone isn't going to go very far. There's the Steve Ballmer, you know, uh, the mobile phones. I, I'm not going to say that because uh, I think that'd be a mistake. Well, as you said, when you have a lot of uh, money and a lot of time and people putting energy and resources into something, there's a reasonable chance that at the other end, something important will emerge. 
you were talking about the evolution of database technology. Do you think about the evolution of cloud, cloud storage, hybrid cloud, multi-cloud, and where all of that's going? Because obviously that's an important part of the overall data equation as well. Yeah, it is. Although... I tend to be more on the, the solution side and less on the IT side of it, but I'll tell you where, where we see, see this going. So, you know, a hybrid cloud or multi-cloud, however you want to say, you know, I, I do some things on-prem, I do some things in the cloud, or I do things across multiple clouds. Some of it's financial and some of it's security. And, I, and I'll say, I'll, I'll explain why. So in a, a multi-cloud environment, so I want to make sure that if I develop something in AWS that I can move it to uh Google, or I can move it to uh, Azure uh, with Microsoft. And so I want that flexibility. So I might build something in, in a container in Kubernetes, and then I can move it from, from cloud to cloud. That's, I say, more a financial game, right? Might be different things. I, I may want to be able to negotiate with one company over the other. And if I can keep maintain some flexibility or some portability, then it gives me some, some, some leverage. There may be another aspect to that, which is some cl- not all clouds are created equal in all markets. Some clouds perform much better in other in national markets, we'll say non-US than other clouds. And so you may want to be multi-cloud just because like Experian, you do business in a lot of countries and, and you want to make sure that you have that uh, ability to deliver the best solution possible in whatever market that you're in. So that would be the, I would say the financial, the financial aspect. On the security side, depends who you are. You know, I've talked to a lot of folks that are, 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 we'll call them business slash technologists that appreciate the security features of being in uh, one of the big clouds, uh, knowing that, you know, they're completely obsessed and with the best tools and, and keeping that up. It's a very maintaining uh, cyber uh, defense, cybersecurity defense is a lot of effort, work, know-how. You have to get the best people. You have to be constantly on it. Experian happens to be one of those companies where we invest a lot in making sure that we are out there on that edge. But there is some value of, of being in the cloud uh, from a cyber, cyber risk perspective. I would say, um, so there's a risk side of it. On the financial side, again, flipping back, you know, I'm managing R&D, uh, we do a lot on-prem that you know we just did the i'll say the cost analysis to say if we did all this in the cloud versus we do this on-prem where would we be better off because of all the i'll call it the computational intensity and uh the data analysis that goes back and forth we we actually have to analyze a lot of the data uh itself and and so that in and out in and out has an expense to it but where does that all head is a different question so that's kind of the where where we're at now where it all heads I um so I have my own opinion. This is more of an Eric Haller opinion more than anything else. So I want to say about six years ago, I had had done a, a market map of the clouds and where they were headed, just trying to figure out w- what what should be experience role in all this. Where what we should have an opinion. The board will ask me for my opinion. I got to have an opinion. So and my perspective was that the clouds, each cloud provider has to look at their ability to differentiate themselves, not just on, on the fact that uh, they're a better financial equation or whatever they have to. And so I, I went to, it's either going to be analytical tools, which Google's tried to do, obviously, or data, which I think Azure's tried. 
And I actually believe that the data aspect of the clouds over time will become more the area of secret sauce. And to give you an example, you've got multiple businesses all aligned on a on one cloud infrastructure. We're talking about real-time data sharing, talking about maybe identity graphs, those types of things. Today, we go through those processes, maybe in, in developing a consortium, a group of businesses that are willing to work together uh, to do it, or you've developed a certain amount of infrastructure that has access to that data. So I think in a cloud environment, they're kind of naturally on that door to be able to drive consortium related things where the added value would be very easy to demonstrate because of the, the infrastructure and the environment that they're in. I think that's all upside benefit to everybody, by the way. I don't, I don't see that as a, as a, I see that I, I could argue all the upside benefits of that over time. But again, that's more, you're hearing, I guess this would be my, my abstract thoughts than, than anything else. Eric, we've been talking about the technology. This podcast is really about the business impact, the consumer impact of real-time data and innovation. And so let's talk about the role of data in innovation at Experian. So how do those pieces connect? Innovation, real-time data, and Experian's business goals. A couple of things. One is, um, and, and you might you might be aware of this. Uh, I, I was uh, in, in a book written by Greg Sattel called Mapping Innovation, and he uh, uh, he did a chapter on our labs and how we innovate in the labs. And one of the things that that he had earmarked was that all innovation centers around solving business challenges. And I say that first because the role of data, data in my mind is typically treasure that you, you tap to solve a problem, but it's not your go-to to innovate from, it's your go-to to solve a particular problem. So like with our labs across the globe, we are highly engaged with our markets, our client base. In fact, we measure, we have a funnel that starts with our clients on top and how often we engage with them. And we actually measure our level of engagement quarter over quarter, region by region, just because that all ideas come from solving our clients' problems. That's, that is the, that's, that's kind of the top of the funnel. When you start getting into the how, when you start getting to the how, so I've got a particular challenge, it might be, I've, I've got a fraud problem and it's, uh, it's when, when people are using their mobile devices and it's only mobile devices and it's for this kind of app that I'm using. I don't, I mean, it, they can get very specific, they can get very abstract. Then you go to the, the, the data to try to figure that out. You go, okay, what can I learn from the data? In our labs, what we try to do is create, I'll call it like, like Three River Stadium. You know, all the rivers kind of lead. We, we try to get all the data rivers from all the businesses leading to one, one location. Uh, that way, when it comes time to problem solve, to solve, solve for an issue, we have as much data as possible that we are aware of. If we, if we in our problem solving think we don't have the right kind of data to solve it, we actually have a team that goes out and talks to other companies that might have the kind of data we need to try to pull that in. With a company like Experian where data and machine learning or analytics becomes kind of like the fuel for the, the problem solving, it becomes kind of a second nature for us. And the biggest 
I'd say the biggest guardrails on it is our regulatory environment that we work within. So like I mentioned, all of our businesses, the credit business has got the Fair Credit Reporting Act. The auto business has the Driver's Privacy and Protection Act. Even uh, uh, multiple businesses have Gramm-Leach-Bliley. Uh, our healthcare business has HIPAA. All of our data scientists have to be, they have to learn the law. They're tested regularly on the law. Our audits go in place to make sure we're in compliance with the law. So when I say all this, and maybe just in case anybody was curious about this, they go, oh, experience got a lot of data. What are you doing with it? So we have to go through all, all those guardrails to ensure that when we do go to solve a problem, we use as much data as we can, that we're doing everything in a legal and compliant manner. But that's second nature for us. Like I can tell you that, you know, with all the processes we have in place, we appoint people to do nothing but but assess these things. But in most companies, that wouldn't be the case. I think in most companies, it takes a lot of work to set up an environment where you've got that steady flow of data. You've got people that are aware of what's available, what they can use. Sometimes it is the human ingenuity and creativity. Sometimes it's, hey, you know, when we first started our lab 11 years ago, we built a, a, what was it? It was a JavaScript that basically turned data into attributes. And we took any corpus of data to turn them into thousands of attributes, thousands of attributes. So you didn't even have to know that the logic was, you don't even need to know the data. Let's see what pops. Let's, let's run it through. We'll throw some machine learning at it. Maybe it's a, uh, uh, who knows, boosted trees or, you know, whatever it is, but we'll see what pops. And then that will guide our, our direction. And sometimes that, that works. Sometimes that's, that's super helpful. Sometimes it's, it's more than that. Sometimes you have to think through what it is you're trying to solve and, you know, I almost call some of our attributes like they're mini models all of themselves. And, and you have to think through that uh, and you'll get more, you'll get more out of it, more juice from the grape. So you said innovation comes from, I'm interpreting here, comes from the, your customers' challenges and the customer uh, problems that they're trying to solve and your customer goals and you're innovating off of that as opposed to innovation being as opposed to data being the source of innovation data is the treasure as you described it but there must be times when you have access to certain kinds of data and that then spurs you to drive innovation you know it's an interesting posit because because my gut tells me you've got to be right but um, I'm just thinking about practical applications in our business. The thing is, you would love to have the, the bandwidth to go through kind of uh, let your heart go wild on this data set and see what you come up with. The last time, I'm trying to think the last time we did that. See, the problem, the problem is, Michael, is a lot of times if you do that, sometimes you might get the one in a million needle in a haystack, I, I found a winner. But you're more likely to find winners if you're chasing a particular problem to solve. Because if because you know if you solve it, somebody will, I mean, the theory is, somebody will pay for it. And that's 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 the thing there. I, I, I'm just thinking about COVID. That might be one of the areas, you know, we, uh, uh, we did a lot of work in COVID uh, when the pandemic hit in all of our uh, labs where you know, we came with the initial premises, the current models, the SEIR model, the IHME model, the models that were being used to uh, assess 
how quickly the, the, the virus was spreading and what the impacts were, were important, but we wanted to bring it a little bit closer to home around economic impact because, you know, the, the closure of businesses in a particular geography, people becoming unemployed or having to go to unemployment. So we felt that Experian was in a, a nice spot to help help hospitals, help governments, municipal governments, federal government in assessing the, the, the building up of hot spots uh, uh, across the country. And, and we wound up doing this uh, in multiple countries, actually. But, you know, in that case, you know, that was, again, it was a problem where we thought we might have a solution on, but our net for data got cast pretty wide. And, you know, things, data assets that, you know, pulling GPS data from uh, Mark advertising, online advertising networks. Like you wouldn't think to use something like that maybe initially, unless you started to want to say, well, how compliant are people with stay at home orders and that kind of thing. Then all of a sudden you use that. And, and if there's more movement in an area, we can model it and, and show that, that the, the virus would spread more and you'd have a bigger impact on, on business and economy in a negative way. In Brazil, we realized that we didn't have the data to solve the problem. And we engaged in a very ambitious network of companies that wound up, we wound up partnering with the United Nations and the World Health Organization and guys like Amazon and Microsoft, uh, universities like University of Chicago in Brazil, like they actually, even though they're in the US, they helped with us in Brazil, along with like University of Sao Paulo and others to build out a network of data. And because we didn't have it all with an experience, but we had some pieces of it and we had this ambition that said um, the world needs help right now and and we should do our part. And eventually it will feed back to the things that we're good at and helping our customers figure out, you know, business problems. But in that, in that case, you know, maybe there was a bigger picture there. But again, it wasn't like kind of going through the data as much as, you know, listen to, listen to the problem. And, and maybe where the human creativity is, is trying to assess where, like, I will tell you, this is like human creativity aspect. When we were brainstorming around what data might be helpful in tracking the virus, I mean, you wind up realizing some very specific things were helpful, uh, like, um, uh, so we call them social determinants, like proximity to public transportation. Like that actually was a, it's a very useful statistic in tracking, tracking virus spread. But in our brainstorming, we went as nutty as, hey, can we look at buy nine digit zip or seven digit zip, people buying like cough syrup and the thermometers and things like because they're sick and they're going to the store and buying it. Will that be enough up in the in will it be tell us enough that it would be like an early indicator before they took a COVID test, like that that there's somebody sick? Turned out not to be useful, by the way. So so just so you know, it's, it's just noise. But but that's what I'm saying is you want to you want the problem to drive your net, capture whatever data you can or can think of or can I get access to, and then let the data tell you how to solve the problem. And that's that's more of a even though it doesn't sound data centric, that is a that is I I would say that is a data centric approach. It's very clear that you're looking at real problems and figuring out what kinds of data you have available or might you need or be able to get in order to address those problems. And 
Eric, as we finish up, you were talking about the social benefit of data. And so how can organizations, governments use large scale real-time data to the benefit of customers, to us citizens, to the to the social benefit of of our environment? You know, so I guess, you know, your listeners are at all different levels, all different kinds of companies. I, uh, I, I will tell you that it's not like big pharma. You know, like when I think of big pharma, I think of, uh, hey, you don't really get into the big pharma game unless you got like a few billion dollars to spend on infrastructure. Otherwise, you're not going to you're not going to really get get into the game. And, you know, with data, it's not there yet. Like I, I'm talking about all the infrastructure we have at our, our disposal at Experian. So we're pretty fortunate that way. And they're, they're, you know, that's, I'll call it the tier one companies that have that kind of infrastructure. I think if I was doing a startup and I was chasing what I think we say is social good challenge, like uh, deep fakes, I'll tell you deep fakes. I, I, I'm, I'm like, you know, you've, you'll see experience a lot in the press around deep fakes because I've got the labs uh, and our fraud and ID group uh, putting a lot of time and effort thought into that because I think that's an emerging challenge for the world. I think three years from now, it's going to be much more challenging than it is now. And if you're, uh, if you're a startup, you could still chase a noble purpose around deep fakes. I mean, there's, there's, uh, but you've got to, you've, you've got to be able to persuade others in your fight that uh, it's worth it to jump on board. It's a different challenge if, if you're, you know, brilliant like Mark Zuckerberg and come up with a platform that everybody just gloms onto. And then you've got the data that you can, that's a dream, right? And uh, if you come up with that, that's uh, that's fantastic. Otherwise, you're going to have to get stakeholders to jump in, and they have to they have to uh, uh, share in the same dream and the vision. And I, I'd say, um, just try to do good. Like uh, stay, stick with what's legal. We've got a lot of clar- clarity. I think uh, you know governments can always be more clear, of course. But you know, I I think what you'd see is a world trend is government trying to right size legislation uh, to protect people, but allow innovation and uh, our lives to be uh, impacted in a positive way to continue to grow. But yeah, that's what I would say is, is be ready to work with a lot of other folks. I mean, and I would, starting with a company like Experience always uh, is always a good thing. If it's a big idea, you know, we, we work on things with other companies all the time around big ideas. But generally speaking, I think that's that's the key. Stake, stakeholders. Collaborate. Collaborate. That's the word I was looking for. That's a better word. Eric Haller, thank you so much. This has been a very insightful and inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Hey, thanks, Michael. I always appreciate being on your show. So thank you. We've been speaking with Eric Haller from Experian. Everybody, thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check out the next episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode. As a reminder, you can watch all podcast episodes on redis.com slash the data economy. Check out redis.com slash business for related executive content.